1: Lord, thank you for these words that you did not send your son into the world to condemn it, but in order that we might be saved through you. Come now in your spirit, fill us with your presence, we pray. Amen. Welcome. Great to have you here, especially those of you who chose not to go to a lake house, but to be with, with us here on a Sunday evening. Isn't that great? Uh, we're going to be looking, uh, in the few moments we have, at this, our first passage, which is Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, forgive me for the perhaps perceived mispronunciation of the prophet's name. I uh, am forever marked by my British education, and so I was always corrected, and so it's one of those things that I carry on with me, Isaiah as opposed to Isaiah, but there we are. So we, it's, it's an epic Passage that uses epic imagery and has a number of surprises in it. If you turn with me to your bulletins uh, or your Bibles, uh, in your bulletins, it's on page five. And the great surprise here is we see that the future isn't set, the future is not already determined because everything changes for Isaiah in this passage. And God has this ability to redefine the future. So, everything has not yet been concluded. There is room for the Lord to move. That's one of the big takeaways. And the first thing we see in Isaiah chapter six, verse one, is that we read that this all happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, why is that significant? Well, uh, the first reason it's significant is that it tells us that it's grounded in history, and it also tells us something about who was king, who was no longer king. And this happens before we int- were introduced to the king of heaven. So Uzziah started with lots of promise. He was very gifted. And I think as it was then, maybe it is today, so many of us are blinded by gifted people, aren't we? We think that just because they're gifted, they'll be great. So let's, let's get them, right? And uh, put them in a place of significance so that their gifting can be a blessing to everyone. And we can sometimes overlook character. Because this is what happened to Uzziah. When he comes, yeah, he is made king at the age of 16. He has a period where he's, uh, you know, um, chaperoned, as it were, and then when he's released, he has this ingenuity with uh, military tactics, and the, um, he d- invents these machines, history records, that shoots arrows from high places. So he becomes a brilliant military tactician, and one by one, the enemies on their left, on the right fall, and what happens? They come into a time of prosperity, And because of the gifting that's there, and because he's made himself almost a self-made man, pride takes hold. And what happens is, is that he commits an unfaithful act. Because he becomes so pride, he believes that he can do the one thing that's only reserved to the priests. doesn't matter how good a king you are, you have no business going into the holy of holies to burn incense, and yet this king thinks, I'm above it all. I've done all of this. Of course, I can go in and see God face to face, for I'm his equal. And he goes in, and the moment he goes in, he gets struck with leprosy. And in that moment, he loses his crown because a leper cannot be king. And so in the year when the proud, arrogant king who disrespected God died, so that's, that's, what's about, that's all what's happened. All of a sudden, he says, I saw the true king sitting upon a throne, which is one of these incredible wow moments. So children, if you're listening, in your activity bags, I put into most of the clipboards, I may have missed one, a blank sheet of paper. And what I'd like you to do on that blank sheet of paper is draw or write about something that made you go, wow. The first time I truly went, wow, I was a bit older than you, I was 13, and I'd gone whale watching, and I'd seen a whale come up for air, and it was the biggest thing I'd ever seen, and I just went, wow, because I realized how small I was. So children, go ahead and just think about that, maybe write about it, maybe draw a picture, and I'd love to see them afterwards. And so what he sees afterwards is, wow, wow. This is kind of the epic cosmic nature of of, of what the prophet sees. And what he sees is, he sees the Lord. And what's he doing? He's sitting on a throne. So the bad king has died. He sees this epic vision of a king on a throne who's high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. I'm getting to verse two. So imagine. I don't know if any of you have been um, to—I'm going to get the name wrong. I was going to call it the Death Star, but it's, you know, where the the Cowboys play. Okay, so that's where he's seated. And his head just about—it just goes, you know, through the roof, and he's seated. And the train of his garments roll out from Arlington into downtown Dallas. I mean, the scale of this is incredible, this is what he sees. He's high and lifted up, and the train of his robe is, is massive. And above him, above him, what, hap- what does he see? He sees seraphim. Now, what are seraphim? Well, actually, they're a bit terrifying, I think. They are, um, the Hebrew scholars tell us, they're fiery, angelic beings. They have six wings which is figurative, maybe literal, I've never seen one, but to us it's kind of like this figurative interpretation which shows us they have remarkable powers because they have six wings. And the reference here is what do they do with these six wings? With two that covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Why is that significant? Here's the significance. Even a perfect Superhuman creature humbles himself in the presence of Almighty God. Even one of these angelic powerful beings, represented by the height of all of ancient Near Eastern art, even they humble themselves before the all holy God. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We have this kind of threefold repetition which intensifies what's being said. And the holiness we're talking about is implies absolute moral purity, but it also implies absolute otherness from anything created. And it also um, It also denotes the sense of being set apart above the creation. So it's a recognition that the one here is above all else. And then it carries on. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with his smoke, with his glory. And uh, glory is a, is, a, is a jargony word in Christian circles. Do, do we even know what it means? I mean, the scholars among us will know. But, you know, we can say, oh, glory, you know, someone, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a buzzword to say. But te- it actually is a technical term that speaks of God's manifest presence. And this is important just because of where this is going. It speaks of God's presence with the people he calls into covenant with, into relationship with. It was seen as a cloud in the wilderness. It moved in to fill the tabernacle. When Solomon dedicates the temple, there's such a presence of God's glory that the priests aren't able to do the one thing they're paid to do, right? It just, it's just completely uh, shuts everything down. And it's also something that can be seen. And several passages look forward to the day when the Lord's glory would fill the earth. in in and through all things. It's incredible, isn't it? The revelation of the Holy One, though, is disturbing. Because the first time, this is the first time that Isaiah speaks in verse 6, and what does he say in verse 5? He says, Woe is me. It's... This word woe is, is a lament that comes from deep in the bones, where it's a, a, it's a lament, but it's also a confession of brokenness. It's also a confession of sin. It's a confession of imperfection, and it makes him unfit to stand in the throne room of God. And if you tie it up with what's just happened to Uzziah in recent news, it's I'm about what happened to the king is about to happen to me because I am not meant to be here. I'm not a priest. Isaiah is a prophet. And this is, what he, this is what he means when he says, I'm a man with unclean lips. Unlike the seraphim choir whose worship is pure, here's someone who's incredibly unpure because they're human. And then he says, I dwell in the midst. I I dwell in the midst, you see this here, of people of unclean lips. Prosperity had made the people proud, and they'd grown the kind of pride that can become a seedbed of injustice. Isaiah's generation is unfit for God. They've lost their way. And Isaiah himself, he recognizes, I'm of these people. I'm no better. But then he says, he carries on, my eyes have seen the king. And he realizes that no one can see God and live. And here's the surprise. Destruction isn't the fate. Isaiah's humility enables him to receive all that God has for him. Grace. And here is this incredible thing that happens. One of the seraphim flies down somehow, grabs a coal that's burning and touches his lips. And the remedy to Isaiah's condition is given to him. Grace. Grace is personally applied in God's holiness and glory that filled the space. All that could be tangibly seen, what happens to it? It enters into Isaiah's experience. It enters into him, and all of a sudden, everything is redefined. The experience is redemptive. The greatest rebuke I ever received—I uh, know we just had a confession. I'll give you another one. Um, I ever had was fr- uh, from the Lord. Involved a coworker. The year was 2009. So it was before we come to America, so all you know, present company accepted. And, and I had a dream that I believe was from God that, was, that really disturbed me. And in the dream, I saw a coworker who I worked at the church with in a car accident lying in the street, dying. And I heard this voice say, what's wrong with this picture here? And in the dream, I said, well, he's dying in the street. And I heard the Lord say, I'm the giver of life. I can bring him back to life with no no problem. That isn't the problem. And so I said, what is the problem? He said, and again this voice said, the problem is this coworker is lying, bleeding the street, and you don't care. And then I woke up, and I realized that my heart had gotten so hard against this person I was meant to be doing ministry with, that it'd become calloused in heart, and I I couldn't say that I loved him. Well, I'd say it, because you have to say it, right? Because, you know, you're Christians and all. But I'd become proud. How? I'd made the mistake of holding this coworker hostage in my heart for everything he wasn't. And instead of celebrating all that he is, I was holding him, I was counting everything that he wasn't against him. Whereas what we're meant to do in community is to lean in, to use our gifts and strengths to cover and make up for what he isn't. What did I need? I needed more of his grace. Why? Because what does that redemptive power, the, you know, what does it mean for the glory of God to come in and to fill an individual? To fill their hearts with the knowledge of the love of God, well, it's it's gods in the ancient Near East define themselves with certain attributes, and here the Lord of Lords defines Himself as a God who brings grace to His people. Redemptive power, as God uses it, isn't just about breaking even. So we had confession; that isn't just about breaking even. It is about taking away what's bad. It is about cleansing, but it doesn't stop there. It's also about strengthening. Redemptive power is the seedbed of courage. It's the birthplace of justice. It's utterly empowering. It leads people from woe to me to here I am, send me. It redefines the future. And when the grace of God comes upon us, we are forgiven for what we've done and the mercy of God covers our imperfections so that we can then begin to reflect to those around us what's been given to us. Jesus by his death and resurrection enables us to be covered by his grace and mercy which means our sins are forgiven and suddenly we're able to step into all of our redemptive potential. That's the movement from woe is me to here I am, send me. His mercy covers all that we're not. Our imperfections and our inability inability, and through our prayer and devotion, he leads us into a place of healing and restoration and destiny. And he calls us to live in community with each other. So that's Isaiah six. And because Isaiah has this experience, this encounter with God's grace, he is able then to speak to the nations. And what does he talk to the nations about? What comes from the rest of the book? A message of over, the overruling grace of God. Some of you may know I grew up in a family where my uh, mother uh, was. She recently retired, a, a federal court judge, and dad a lawyer. So, you know, that sense of sustained, overruled at the dinner table was strong. And isn't it wonderful to hear that God, as King, through Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, is able to say, overruled whatever the charges against us that we might face, overruled, how? By His grace. So I don't know if that hits home to many of us tonight, maybe not, maybe so, maybe just for one or two, there's a sense of, I'd love to lean into more of what the Lord has for me here, or I'd love to experience more of His grace. I'd love to go deeper, well, it's, it's, it, you know sometimes the most significant things are incredibly simple, and that's what makes them complicated, because we think there ought to be more involved. But I'm going to suggest we just transition with a simple prayer, which is a prayer developed by Ignatius of Loyola, which is incredibly powerful and incredibly simple, which is take and receive, where we ask the Lord to take the things that we, that we would be free of. And that in return, the expectation is He would give us something of Himself. So I'll lead us, and um, and if you, if you feel like you'd like to respond, great. If not, just keep drawing, children. You're doing a great job. Um, and the rest of us, you know, if you felt the Lord's moving in, if not, don't worry. Don't, don't feel you have to join in, but do pray for, for those of us here who do feel led To respond to what the Lord might be saying, the invitation to be filled with the fullness of the glory of God, which is the presence of Jesus by His Spirit, and to receive His gift of grace. So let's pray. And just repeat these words quietly in your own hearts so no one hears. Lord Jesus, I come to you and ask that you would take All my sin Would you take all my weaknesses Take all my gifting Take all my strength Take my hopes Would you take my dreams Take all that I am I give it all to you And all I ask in return is for the gift of your grace. I ask for the gift of your mercy. I ask for a deeper, heartfelt, intimate knowledge of the love that you have for me. That is enough. And would you come now, Holy Spirit, and would you seal upon our hearts afresh the gift of grace that you make known to us from the Father through the Son. In Christ's name, amen.